stop doing the status quo or what society says to do or what your parents told you to do. Like, just stop it. Stop it right now and start doing what it is that was in the back of your mind. Like maybe when you were five years old and you're like, oh, it would be so fun if I could just color all day. Okay, color all day, right? Get Make that part of your life that you get to color all day. It's not silly, it's not childish. Go back to having a childlike heart. The more we can go back to having a childlike heart, the more extraordinary and meaningful our lives can be. Helping CEOs and business leaders discover the energy to perform exceptional brilliance and positively impact the lives of those around them. Be inspired by world leaders, game-changing influencers, and next-level gurus. This is the Active CEO Podcast, where the ordinary don't belong. And now your host, CEO and founder of Energy to Perform, international speaker and leadership performance coach, Craig Johns. On this episode of the Active CEO Podcast, we speak with a financial therapist, speaker, best-selling author, and Prosperity Report Love and Money podcast host. She focuses on stress management and midlife crisis for high performers and has starred in magazines like Ali and Marie Claire and on the television sensation Oprah. She has a Bachelor of Arts Media Studies from the Columbia College in Chicago and a Master's in Clinical Mental Health Counselor from Augusty University. Her career has included event planner at Innovative Custom Event Design, financial advisor at Ameriprise Financial Services, financial planning specialist at Morgan Stanley Wealth Management, and is currently the CEO, author, speaker of Presidential Lifestyle Incorporated. I'm honored and privileged to introduce you to a beautiful leader who has dedicated her life to relieving the pain in the world, volunteering for the Wellbeing Foundation, being a super grandmother, and performs as a spoken word poet. Kine Korda. Kine, welcome to the show. Ah, thank you. Thank you for having me. Brilliant. And so you, you grew up in Chicago. You know, tell me what it was like for you as a child and what did you dream of being when you grew up? Oh, I love that question. So, cause I talk about it a lot, you know, in my work as, as we, especially as Americans, we asked our children that question so young, like, what do you want to be when you grow up? What do you want to be when you grow up? And so nobody really has the answer. <laughs> However, a few people do know. I was not one of those people. My sister was. My sister knew what she wanted to be when she grew up. I did not. What I would say was, I wanna, I wanna be wealthy. I knew I wanted to be wealthy. I knew I wanted to be happy. I would say who I wanted to be. I wanted to be a happy person, a wealthy person. That is all I knew. But how I was gonna do it, I didn't know. I also wanted to help people. And people would say, well, that's that's pretty broad. <laughs> what do you want to be a doctor and i'm like no i don't want to be a doctor i just want to help people feel better they're like that sounds like a doctor to me so <laughs> i was pretty misunderstood growing up because i didn't pick a profession like most people do but i was pretty much misunderstood just because like my brother would say you're the strangest person i know so i was always known as the strange one because i was doing the opposite of what other people were doing while kids were outside playing i was like studying and figuring things out and sometimes listening to music that my parents were listening to not the, the music my friends were listening to like my first concert i don't know if you know this guy but his name is frankie beverly and he is Right now he's like 75 years old. So when I was 14 years old, that was the first concert I took myself to because I loved the older music. So that's really how I grew up. I grew up being ahead of the curve, ahead of my time and pretty wise. A lot of times people would come to me even when I was young, like eight, nine years old uh, for advice. and. I grew up fast because of that. Not fast in the sense that like I, it was a hardship type of life style. We grew up with a certain amount of money. We weren't we weren't rich or anything, but we had a certain amount of money. I went to private school all my life, and so we had a great upbringing. It didn't come. It did definitely had some trauma in it, which we'll talk about later because that's the work I do now. 
but it definitely has some trauma in it and and some traumatic experiences but overall it was it was just a fun childhood that came with the ability to accept myself the way I am because my parents fostered that and a lot of people don't get that and that's the work that I do now you talked a bit there around you know being you know people coming to you for questions so why do you think people saw you as a leader and someone to follow and someone to receive guidance from i think the first reason was because i was born with an extra dose of calm so while everybody else is freaking out i'm i'm like hmm what do we have here what shall our next steps be? Like, that's the way that I'm approaching the situation rather than you know running around the room crazy. So I think everybody's looking like, well, why are you so calm? So they want to know the answer to that. <laughs> and then the second reason is I didn't, I don't hold my tongue. Like the first two years of my life, I did not talk. I just observed. And then once I started talking, I didn't hold my tongue. Like my very first words were, you're bothering me. <laughs> so because by the time I did start talking just that honesty came out people knew that if they came to me I was going to give them the honesty the third reason is very early on my parents taught me to trust my gut I'm a gut person so we might get to it I'm not sure but I have this philosophy that most people in the world are either head heart or gut people I'm a gut person through and through everything I do is straight out of my gut and I was taught at a very early age to cultivate that. And so my friends around me would just trust my gut. They're like, well, what does your gut say? Well, that's what we're doing. So we don't get in trouble. <laughs> and, and so it's really interesting. Um, so I might just jump forward a little bit here. So when COVID mm -hmm. hit, you know, a lot of people are trying to, you know, there's advice out there that no, you should go with evidence and reason. And then there's others saying, no, just go with your gut. For you, what naturally happened? Did you fall straight into that gut instinct feel when COVID hit on how you looked at your organization or thought about the people that we were serving? About 80, 70, 80% of it was gut. And then there was this 20, 30% that was listen to my elders. So I needed advice. Like this was the first time when I got into the business, like when I really got into business, it was the first financial crash. So I was familiar with crisis, but I was just coming in. And I don't know how many of you have experienced where you're just starting a business during the crisis. For you, it's not a crisis because the beginning is hard anyway, right? Yeah. So I came into the, the financial, this is when I was a financial advisor. So I came into the financial world during the crisis. And so I didn't know any different. And then it just started to skyrocket and everything was just up and going well. And you know, just life was good. Business was good. It was growing and growing and growing. And even as I was going through my master's program, I was learning more. So my business was growing. I was like even more wise than I was before. And so I went through this long run of up swing. So when it was like drop, even though I wrote the book, my book is called The Art of Starting Over. Even though I wrote the book on starting over, there was still so much I didn't know. And so, like I said, 70, 80% was follow your gut. And then that other 20, 30% was like mentors, elders, like who's done this before? <laughs> Pour into me, give me some direction. And I use that and I followed that. And so you went off to university, you know, to study media studies and then obviously later on to become a counselor so you know what drew you to media studies to begin with and then obviously later on why did you tend to end up towards the counseling and, and serving people yes it is it was a very long transition to get to counselor when i was growing up when i was 13 years old there was a little girl in our neighborhood who committed suicide and that blew my mind. I was just like, I don't know how a 13 year old is under that much stress that she needs to commit suicide. And it always stuck in the back of my head that I would need to do something about this. Like, why are people in pain like this that they would take their lives? So that was in the back of my head. But after years of performing, I was in dance classes and drama and all the things I really wanted to be in the entertainment industry. However, we'll tweet, you brought this up a little bit 
that I was on a show called Extreme Makeover, which took me to Elle and Marie Claire and Oprah show and all of that, all of that stuff. So before doing Extreme Makeover, I had what I felt like was a deformity. The plastic surgeons were like, this is nothing. We can fix this with no problem. So before that, because my lips were oddly shaped, I didn't feel comfortable in front of the camera. And so I decided to go behind the camera. So I was like director, producer, all the jobs behind the camera I was comfortable with. I knew how to edit, engineer, camera, all the things. And so that to me was fun. I could do anything on the set and just be at peace. Doesn't matter, I was. I could be an extra. Doesn't matter what they asked me to do, I was happy there. And so I did that for a while. However, there's a lot of fluctuation in that business. And if you if you remember, at least in the US, I believe this is all over, but you watch your favorite TV show and then they say, you know, it's canceled with very little notice. They're like, not coming back next year. You're like, whoa, I love that show. Well, the people who were working on that show didn't find out much before you did. It's not like they say, hey, this is gonna be our last season. The way they do today, they did that. But when I was in the business, it wasn't like that. You would come to work one day and they'd say, this is our last show. Wow. Yeah. And so with that amount of fluctuation, it just made me nervous and scared. And you were always working to network because you didn't know when you were going to be hitting the pavement again and looking for a new position. So because of that, I said, you know, I want to do something that's a little bit, I have a little bit more control. Now, people are going to say you went into, the, so then you went into the financial industry, <laughs> which it has just as much fluctuation as the entertainment industry, if not more. But there were parts of it that I could take control of. So I went into the financial industry. I did everything with a dollar sign associated. I sold money like loans. I sold insurance, uh, eventually stocks and bonds. And then I became a financial planning specialist. As a financial planning specialist, what I learned was it did not matter what I was going to put on that piece of paper for those people to do. If their mindset wasn't right, they were not going to execute on that plan, no matter how beautiful it was, no matter how to the T it was to what they told me their dream was. And the reason is because they're programmed. And so they'd come in my office, we create these beautiful financial plans, they go out in the world and they do completely the opposite. They circumvent the plan completely. And I'm brokenhearted because I put so much work into it and I'm behind them. And then I'm like, what the heck? This is not your dream. You said this was your dream. What you're doing is not your dream. And they're like, yeah, I know, but I changed my mind. I'm like, no, you can't change your mind. <laughs> and so what I found was people needed help with more than stock picks and numbers. They need to help with their mindset. It's more specifically their money mentality or their money personality. And so I started studying that behavioral finance and financial therapy and fell in love. And I was like, this is what I want to do. And then I remembered the little girl who committed suicide. And I was like, oh, wow. Like there's so many reasons why we're unhappy, but I'm getting to see them closer and closer now. And it went that at that point, I made the shift from financial advising to financial therapy. I went back to school, got my master's in clinical mental health counseling, and really felt like I could make a difference. At the end of my master's program, I I met a hypnotherapist, and then I learned hypnotherapy. And as soon as I went into, I first worked in the hospital, and I worked with really severe diagnosis. And then after getting that training, I moved into private practice. And that's when I was really able to see my work and my life, I mean, my, my work change lives. Just because when you really get a chance to go deep into somebody's subconscious brain, and you can just shift that program, erase what was used to be there, so they're no longer triggered by those things. Or if you heard the saying that Einstein says, insanity is doing the same thing, expecting a different result. Well, that's not insanity, that's humanity. We all do it, it's the way the brain was wired. But if I could show the brain that there are more choices than that one they keep repeating, then I can help them. But if they don't know that there are more choices, they're not gonna take any other choice but the one they've been taking, which keeps bringing them pain. But it's like, wait, you don't have to be in pain. There are all these other choices, let's choose one and see what happens. And then they find, wait a minute, this is much better than the old choice. Why didn't I ever see this choice? And then they begin to choose other choices and see that they don't have to do the same thing expecting a different result. 
So you've chosen to you know, work with adults. Did you ever think of working with children so that you could maybe set them up so that they could program from an early age rather than having to go back later on and try and deprogram and reprogram? Yes. In the beginning of my private practice, I worked a lot with teenagers, mainly because one of my first patients was a teenager that was to most, to most people like help. You couldn't help him. And I somehow knew I was like, this kid is not what you guys think he is. He's just angry. And so I got to work with him and he made such a transition that a lot of the therapists in the area that I was working in at the time started sending me all the teenagers. They're like, oh, well, you need to see Kane. You need to see Kane. You need to see Kane. And so I worked with teenagers a lot. But what I found was I would work with those teenagers, but I was sending them right back into the system that created the trauma that they brought to me. And so even though I could do that, if they're not 18 years old and about to leave that house, they're going to go back into that same system and it'll get re-traumatized. So it started saying, well, you know, that is my ultimate goal as I build this business where it is right now, working with adults, especially high achievers, because high achievers tend to sacrifice their relationships, especially their relationships with their children. And so if I can work with the high achievers and give them this, these principles, they can pass it down to their children because they are creating those children. And so if I can get them to see the principles that I've learned over the years, then I know I can help the children as well. Beautiful. And we're very aligned in that approach because I've always had the same philosophy that it's better to work at the top because they are the role, model, role models and the key influences over the people below them. So if, if you can get their behaviors right, then it will flow on through. So I love that. Very, very good. Yeah. You talk about in the work that you do that money is still the number one reason why couples get divorced. Why is that? Mm-hmm. The number one reason would be they have two different ideas of prosperity. And what I mean by that is the way that they feel like they're going to feel good around money. So let's say, for instance, one partner says saving is the best way to feel good in life. Like as long as I've saved, as long as I know I have money for the future, then that is my idea of prosperity. Where another says as long as we get to like spoil all the people in our family, like we just take care of everybody. If anybody comes to us, we give, we give, we give, we give, we give, we give. Those two partners are always going to clash because one is saying, hold on to the money. Other one is saying, give, give, give. And so whenever they put together a plan, somebody is not going to be fulfilled unless they do the work that I talk about. And that is how to navigate the money cycle. And I call it the money mission. And the way that you navigate the money cycle is going to determine your lifestyle. So I define the money cycle as earn, grow, protect, gift, and enjoy your money. So if you go straight from earning it to enjoying it, and you didn't get a chance to protect it or grow it and even gift it, then it's not likely to be around for very long. And so we really work to have the couple find their idea of prosperity in each one of those areas, talk about it together, bring them together, bring the two ideas together, and then create a money mission statement from there. And that money mission statement will encompass both people's dreams. And if both dreams are in there and they know why, because we talk about the why all the way through, why and they know why this is their dream because the why is what's going to fuel you because willpower will fail you you'll see a pair of shoes or or even a house that's going to like make you want to circumvent the plan and you at that point you're going to have to rely on your why power not your willpower because your why power will fuel you when your why when your willpower fails you so your why power fuels you when willpower fails you And if the two partners know each other, so that's number two. They first, they have two different ideas of prosperity. Second, they probably don't know each other's why. Like, why do you do that? They haven't gotten down deep. And they don't know that, well, my grandmother who came here as an immigrant taught me this. 
right? They don't know that because it's sort of ingrained and we don't really get to talk about it anymore because it's just so ingrained and so programmed that we believe that we just have to do things a certain way. Why? Because our mother's mother told us it was this way and we didn't question it anymore because it got passed down. And so we don't question it. It's just the way it is. I, I once um, dated somebody, we, we folded the towels differently and it didn't really matter because we didn't live together, thank goodness. But... <laughs> But we had this discussion about, no, that's not the way to fold the towels. This is the way to fold the towels. And then I'm like, who says that's the way to fold the towels? Well, this is how they did it. My grandmother did it. My grandmother's grandma. Like, this is the way you fold towels. It's like, this is not the way my mother and my grandmother taught me to fold towels. So I'm using that as a silly example with the same thing. Every How we do anything is how we do everything. So the same thing is true for your money. If your grandparents or your, your parents teach you a certain way about money, then you just think that is the way it is. And so you pass that down. Now, sometimes what happens, and I know this is a long answer to your question, but I'm going to give you this point. Sometimes what happens is... You grow up with one parent being maybe, let's say, a saver, and the other parent being what I call an enthusiast. An enthusiast type is that will buy the bar. Like everybody's going to have a good time if an enthusiast is around, right? So you see the saver, you see the enthusiast, and you get conflicted and you're like, ah. And so, whichever parent wh whose love you crave the most, you'll probably end up being like that parent. So, if you're, if, if you craved your father's love the most and he was the saver, it's likely you're going to become a savior too. And so you'll shun that enthusiast. However, because of the way the universe works, you're likely to attract one. So you're going to end up marrying somebody just like your mother because you hate enthusiasts. And so because you're putting that energy out there, it always comes back to you somehow because you need to resolve. And this is part of the work that we do together. You need to resolve that relationship, that judgment you had of the way that your mother handled money. And, and you need to embrace a certain amount of it because all of us have an enthusiast inside of us. We just don't allow the enthusiast to get out if we're judging the enthusiast. And so you can reconcile that. And that's really what financial therapy is, is reconciling your emotions around money, the judgment around money, all of those things that you should have or you can't do, you, the shoulds, the can'ts, the won'ts, all of those things where it's just take those off the table and learn to navigate that money cycle properly. And when I say properly, I mean customized to you and your partner, because if you guys are not on the same mission, then you will always argue. Very good. So I'm kind of hearing a theme in there that maybe there's a who power before the willpower. Uh, sorry, a who power before the why power before the willpower. <laughs> yes, <laughs> Understanding exactly. who you are and, and who you are and who made you that way. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so our money mindset starts from a very young age uh, mm -hmm. or, or a majority yes. of it. So, so you talk, you, you've obviously delved into this a little bit. When is kind of the, the main phase of our life where our mindset is created and embedded around money? Oh, yes, Greg. Yes, yes, yes. Love this. So this is one of my favorite conversations. And in every single consultation or what, I, what we call an introductory conversation, we talk about this. So from zero to about seven years old, you are observing. You're just making observations. And this is the time when our money observation gets put in place. This is also the time where our love observation gets put in place. So we are observing money. We're observing love. We're also observing career. This is why we can start to have conversations about what we want to be when we grow up, when we're around seven, because we've taken in all of this information that tells us what money is like, how we want to you know, keep, spend it, grow it, protect it, it also love. So those two kind of go together, money and love, which, you know, I talk about together. So what happens though is from zero to seven, we are observing. And then from seven to 14, because while we were observing, we came up with these interpretations that probably weren't correct to our one to seven years old. You don't know the world yet, but you're going to make some interpretations. And so from seven to 14, you're proving those interpretations. However, remember what we said earlier, the brain 
is doing the same thing, expecting a different result. So the brain is scanning the world for familiarity. It's scanning for to be right. The brain has to be right. And so it's like, bam, I knew it. Ah, another example. There we go again. And so you're proving that hypothesis from seven to 14. As you prove that hypothesis from 14 to 21, you go out and practice that hypothesis. And so as you practice the hypothesis, it starts to solidify. After 21, it's set in place and it's very difficult to change that until you see somebody like me, a hypnotherapist um, or financial therapist that can help you shift that belief because it's now ingrained in you. But zero to seven, 80, 95% of your beliefs are set in place, including your money beliefs and the way you give and receive love. And so if from seven to 14, you are just proving that you're starting to hit all of those hard points. That's why high school is so hard. You know, puberty is so hard because <laughs> this is where you're saying, I knew it, I knew it. And then seven to so 14 to 21 becomes really difficult because at that point, you're solidifying it. You're saying, I'm going to practice this again and again and again. And this is when we start doing the same thing over and over, dating the same people, you know, making the same mistakes all over and over and over again. And then that's when we start to get down on ourselves and we, we lose a lot of our confidence. It gets chipped away at because we do keep making the same mistakes and expecting to do something different, but we don't. And do we see differences between men and women or... Are we seeing similar type, uh, you know, similar familiarities? What I see is I want to shift that language just a little bit. And what I see is differences between masculine and feminine. Now, men can be feminine and, mas and masculine. Same thing. Women can be feminine or masculine. And you may hear some people talk about it as like a type personality. The A type would be the more masculine personality. The B type would be the more passive. And so those A type personalities tend to have similar uh, money missions because they are very money mo motivated, where some of the more passive, they're like, oh, money is not that important. I'm not money, money motivated. If we make it, it's fine. If we don't, it's okay. And so a lot of times those two people end up together, though. This goes back to your question about couples. Um, and so what I see is more masculine and feminine energy. The more masculine energy is a lot more money motivated and goes after the money and the things. The more feminine energy is more laissez-faire, just like, ah, uh, whatever. And so when you look at the money mentality quiz that I have, based on your money mentality, you will be able to see how money motivated you are. There's one money, and I've been talking about that all the way through. There's one money mentality called the artist. And you can guess the artist is that like starving artist type where they have this love-hate relationship with money. And that's a more feminine behavior around money because they're like, well, we don't have to talk about the money now. But if you go to um, more, let's say a hero, a hero is usually very driven and they are going to talk about the money. They want to talk about it now. They want to know how much it costs. They want to know, they're going to tell you how much they charge for their services. They are willing to talk about money. However, the hero is really giving. So even though they do a good job of earning money, because they give it away so much, they don't really do a great job at protecting their money. So depending on your money mentality will determine how feminine or masculine, which one of those energies you use money with. So most people that are money motivated are going to be towards the masculine side. And most people who are laissez-faire or, you know, just blase about money are going to be towards the more feminine side. Now that could be a man or a woman though. So you developed the Presidential Experience Private Club. Tell me a little bit a bit more about what that is and why you started it. Okay, so we had why we started it is completely different <laughs> to what it is today. So originally, we started the presidential experience to reach CEOs who were stressed and needed a tribe. But what we found is in my work, what I found is that the the number, the two most frequent things that I that I work with are stress and loneliness. Now nobody comes and says I'm stressed out. Let's talk. Or nobody comes and says I'm lonely. Let's talk. 
they really come for other things. But when we get to the bottom of it, we find those are the two things that we're working on. I say that because that was my mission, my passion. I was like, we've got to relieve some of this pain and the pain is coming from the stress and the loneliness. And, but when we put the group together, we thought that because of that, people would come and want to talk, but that's not what happened. And so what we then shifted to when COVID happened was that the group then became a group for doctors and healers and wellness professionals who do want to have these conversations. How do we help these patients of ours work through this stress, reduce some of this anger, you know, not feel so lonely, follow our direction. And so the sh it shifted from the group being about the CEOs themselves to more of the healers who are going to help the CEOs. And then all of us are doing our individual work with those CEOs. So I still do one-on-one. -on -one. I do some one-on-one -on -one private conversations each week. And then I do some retreats where you would come, you spend two or three days with me and I just pour into you for two or three days and then you can go back into your life. But by then you'll have a step-by-step -step process, how to release some of that stress, some of that anger and, and the loneliness as well. So that's the difference between what, how, why we started it. We started it with one thing in mind, but what we found was that we really needed to pour into the doctors so that they would be supported, have each other, have some principles, the principles that I teach. And then they, all of us can work with the CEOs and help the CEOs get to 100% so we can change this world because the CEOs are affecting their companies. And believe it, you know, whether we believe it or not, culture does not trickle up. I don't care how evolved you are as a person, you're not going to affect your CEO. He or she is not going to change because you're an awesome person. The other way around, though, if your CEO is healed and 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 you know their stress is reduced then that culture can trickle down and the whole company can be more at peace and a ceo can change any of those employees but the other way around is very unlikely so before we delve into how you do that what are the stresses we are seeing more with ceos and what they deal with compared to say an emerging leader a lot of the stresses are similar. It's just on a higher level, right? So there's still marriage, you know, there's still parenting. There's still um, what I call maturing, you know, getting a little older, feeling some aches and pains. And you're like, oh, shoot, what's happening with me, right? There's still the midlife crisis. Like every man is going to have a midlife crisis. But when you're a multimillionaire or even a billionaire, that midlife crisis shows up a lot differently. And when you do that midlife crisis in front of a bigger audience, that is a much different midlife crisis. If all you have to worry about is your community seeing you go through this midlife crisis, that's one set of stress. But if you have to worry about a global audience watching you go through this, that's a whole different kind of stress. So some of the stressors are similar. They're just on a much bigger scale in front of a much bigger audience. So when people are dealing, you know, you talk about midlife crisis there, how can people lessen the impact of a midlife crisis or can people actually avoid it? It is my belief that you're not going to avoid a midlife crisis, whether you're a woman or a man. I see that when I talk with women who are dominating male dominated industries, they tend to go through their midlife crisis very similar to what a man goes through. And so that usually happens after you put your head down and worked like 10 to 12 years, you're usually somewhere between 40 and 55 years old. And you look up and you say, did I achieve in, in America? You know, we say, did I get the American dream, right? Did I get married? Did I have the kids, Did I have the dog, the house, the, the fancy car? Did I get all the things that check all the boxes? And yeah, I did, but wait a minute, I still feel broken inside or, or I, I just don't feel good. I don't, I'm lonely. This isn't working. This wasn't so great. And so that usually happens for those high achievers. Now, the other side of that, will it happen for people who are not high achievers? It will happen for them too. Who I work with the most is high achievers, whether that's male or female. Um, women overall go through sort of a midlife crisis when they have to now have an identity. See, men have had an identity from the beginning. And when women have stayed at home, now they're no longer Amanda's mom. Now they're 
they're Judy, right? But who the hell is Judy? (laughs) She doesn't know. You know, they're no longer John's wife. It's like, oh, shoot. Like, John, maybe he might be retired or whatever he's doing. Now she's like, oh, shoot. What do I do with my life? Kids are out the house. Um, I don't know what to do now. So that's when a woman goes through her midlife crisis. And a lot of times that's around 40, just before 40. Sometimes it could be about 38 to about 50. You would think the midlife crisis for a woman would come around menopause, but it doesn't. Um, But for a man who is what my practice is usually about 60% male at any given time, sometimes up to 80%. So I work with a lot of men. And then the other part of that is women who are dominating their industry, usually male dominated industries as well. You like like the CEO. CEO is, is a male position usually. But nowadays there are a lot more female CEOs, especially in the entrepreneur circle, where is where I work the most. Can you avoid it? Probably not, unless you alluded to this earlier, unless you got poured into as a kid, like that zero to seven, seven to 14, your time span, even, even in the 14 to 21, it would still work. If you got poured into, I love to work with 14 to 21 year olds. That is actually my favorite population to work with because I can reduce some of that programming that came in the early years and help them pour in what they know to be their own American dream or idea of prosperity. That's what I help them discover. And as I discover and design that, then it's not as likely that they would go and have that midlife crisis because they're not waking up saying, oh shoot, whose life is this? Because they designed that life. Now, if you were able to design your life, which is rare, then you might not have a midlife crisis. But most of us became what our parents wanted us to become, right? Became what the teacher told us, or became what some some study said we should be. Or, oh, this is likely to be uh, lucrative. I'll go do that. Those are not the reasons why you do anything. Meaning is why you do it. But because we're not going after meaning in an early age, because somebody asked us at 10 years old, what we wanted to be when we grew up. And then we thought we just had to stick with that because that's what we said. But no, the second reason is because what's not on our resume does not outshine or we don't feel like it outshines what is on our resume. So what's on our resume is more about, you know, the titles and, and the things, but what's not on our resume is really who, what makes us who we are, like how we parent, you know, maybe how, how we show up in the world. When we leave the room, when people say, oh, that guy, Craig, he is so studious. He is so fun. He is so adaptable. Like whatever words they're using, oh, he is so quick on his feet. Whatever words they're using to describe you, like that's not on your resume, but that's who you are. And that's what brings meaning to your life. They don't go, oh, the podcast host, Craig. Yeah, I know that guy. Eh. I mean, that makes you feel good, but only for seven minutes. Yeah. And we find that so often in life where, you know, say friends have dealt with a lot of athletes. So you'll see an athlete and they'll go, um, I'm a triathlete, for instance, my name is Craig Johns. Rather than going, <laughs> my name is Craig Johns and I am a triathlete. So who they are, their identity tends to be external. Yeah. And it takes people a long time to actually make it internal most of the time. And I think it's important. Like I'd love to see teachers at school really be able to support kids and say, you are who you are. Yeah. And you yeah. do these different things in life. Exactly. Yes. You know, I am, you know, I'm Craig Johns. I am a parent. I am a CEO. I am um, a volunteer, but yeah, neither one of those define my identity. No, exactly. Great way to put it. And, and what I also find is that people get so attached to those titles that they don't know who they are outside of it. And if it goes away, which sometimes it does, you know, as a triathlete, you may get injured and then you can't do that thing anymore. And now who are you? So you get so attached to that, that you can't become anything else and so you live in the past and you're like well you know i used to be you know i won some gold medals you know <laughs> it's like, what are you doing now at this particular time <laughs> Wait, who are who still are dreaming you of being now? a gold medalist <laughs> <laughs> yeah and so really helping people let go 
of the ideas that society programs us with. Like you have to be, and especially high achievers, because high achievers ha have been programmed to believe that, you know, it starts early on. It's like, got to get all A's. And once you get out of school, it's like, got to get the six figures, got to get the million, got to get the house, got to get the car. And if you don't do those things, so you look like the title, because you also have to look like the title. I think you did a, a episode about that. And so you have to look like the title. And if you're not showing up like a CEO, then are you a CEO? And nowadays that's changed. So you don't necessarily have to wear the shirt and the tie and the jacket you might have on a sweatshirt, <laughs> a hoodie, you know. That's very good. And so you you started the Prosperity Report, you know, Love and Money podcast, which uh, mm -hmm. you've now changed the name to. That's correct. Yeah, yeah. We what, changed what? the name to Money and Meaning podcast. So the Money and Meaning. And, and so what's the Money and Meaning podcast all about and who's it designed for? So the, the podcast is designed for the CEO. Um, the doctors can get a lot out of it because it'll help them understand what their their high achiever is going through. And that's what I really should say. It's for the high achiever. So the high achiever, whether they're the CEO, um, they may work for a company, they may work for themselves. Um, but who it's really designed for is that high achiever who has sacrificed their relationships, they've sacrificed their wellness, they've sacrificed sometimes even their dignity to get to the top. It's for that person who's saying, I'm at the top. It's long, it is lonely up here like they said it would be, right? And so the podcast is going to help them do a couple of things. One, it's going to help them identify their idea of prosperity. What does the word prosperity mean to you? And maybe you thought you were on that path. And now that you got there, you thought it means you thought it meant stuff, but maybe it doesn't. Maybe it means some well-being. Because what I find is that even though the word prosperity means different things to different people, because I ask that question on every single podcast, what is your idea of prosperity? It means different things to different people, but there are a couple of things that, that are common. It usually has a dollar sign associated with it. There's an amount you want to make, you want to earn, you want to have in your life, and that is okay. And there's also some sort of well-being or wellness associated with it. And then what we call wow, but that's really your love or adventure in your life. You know, that legacy you want to leave. It's like, oh, I loved my wife. I loved my children, you know, or, or, or maybe it was animals or maybe it was just that you loved the community. You grew. Maybe you never got married, had kids, maybe even never had any furry, furry kids either. Maybe you just poured into your community and that's what you were known for. And everybody loved that about you because you loved the community so much. So the, the number, the dollar amount, the, the wellness or well-being, and then the wow, like, wow, I did these, this is who, who makes me who I am. I wake up in the morning to serve this community or to serve my parents. Cause that's my why my parents, they did, like I said, I went to private school my whole life, which means they could have been putting that $20,000 a year into their retirement, but they didn't, they put it in, they poured it into me, my brother and sister. And so I feel like I want to pour back into them in their retirement. So that's a, a big part of why I do what I do. I like that. So you went through the ABC's Extreme Makeover and you ended up on, you know, in magazines, a whole different shows. And one of those was obviously Oprah. You know, for you getting that opportunity to go on Oprah, what was it like for you before you got there? And then being on the show next to someone who is a big high achiever, who's done some incredible things just be in the presence of someone like Oprah. What was it like? Okay, so this is funny. So I wasn't a big Oprah fan before I went on the show, but my grandmother and my sister were. Like they watched the show religiously every single day. Now, this is gonna this is gonna blow your mind. So my my sister is probably my biggest fan. I wanna say my mom is, but I don't know. My sister might be my biggest fan. My grandmother's not alive anymore, but when she was, she was right up there with my sister. Like both of them think that I am bigger than Oprah. So, 
<laughs> when I went on the Oprah show, it was like colleague to colleague because my sister and my grandmother had blown my head up so big. You know, my confidence was so big that there was no intimidation factor because I was like, ah, we finally get to meet. You know, my grandma's been telling me how much like me you are. <laughs> <laughs> And so because of that, when I went on the Oprah show, it really was a chance for me to sit down and explain to people how I got that way. Because I was on Extreme Makeover because I was going to change something about myself that I didn't like. But I had worked so hard my entire life to just accept it, which is what most people don't do. They dwell on it. Oh, my hair's too short. Oh, my hair's too thin. I wish I had thick hair like that lady. Oh, I'm too short. I wish I was taller like that guy. Oh, you know, whatever the thing is that you judge yourself for. I didn't have that. I just said, this is it. This is me. And I accept it. So much so that ABC almost didn't pick me to be on the show because they were like, well, why are we picking her? She's okay with it. And so one of the producers was like, she's okay with it because she's had to be. But I'm telling you, there's a deeper story there. And so that producer allowed me to talk about what it was like when I was seven, eight, nine years old and had to deal with teasing from kids and why I became okay with it because I had to make you okay with it because not everybody was. They looked at me, it was two reactions. One was either, oh, I don't like that, and let me tell her how much I don't like it. Or it was, I don't like that, and I better not act like I don't like it because then she's gonna know I'm staring and uh, I feel bad for thinking these things about her. And so I was like, just like, let's get the elephant out the room. But also I was working really, really hard to be like profound and deep and just make sure that the words that came out of my mouth, since everybody was staring at it, I made sure that the words that came out of my mouth were like, this is gonna blow your mind. So I was like working my butt off, trying to blow people's minds all the time. I was always on and it was very tiring. And eventually when I went on the Oprah show, I just had to admit it was tiring and I no longer wanted to work that hard. I just wanted to be. I didn't want to work all the time. And that I had to admit on the show. But by doing that, that opened up for other people to say, hey, I don't like this thing about myself either. I haven't accepted it, but maybe I should. And But also, maybe I should just change it. And this is what I teach in my program, Control the Controllable, because the awareness was there. The awareness was there, but I had suppressed it. And when ABC's Extreme Makeover put me on the show, I then had to become more aware of it again. And then I said, well, shoot, I had accepted it for so long. I'm done accepting it. Now it's time to adjust it. And I have some people in my corner who are going to help me do that because I didn't even know that was a possibility. I didn't know changing my lips was a thing. And so I got to the point where I was ready to adjust. And then I also had to look at what am I grateful for? I'm so grateful that this got me to this place because I wouldn't be the person we talked about who you are, right? I wouldn't be the person I was if I didn't go through that thing I went through from Z. Well, it really happened for me around seven years old is when my lips started to change. And then I, I made the transition and I was on ABC's Extreme Makeover at 29 years old. So for those years, I lived with that almost 20 years. And But I wouldn't have been this person, this strong, capable, profound, and deep person if I didn't go through that for 20 years. But afterwards, I'm like, you know what? Now I need to figure out who I am without those lips. So let me become more curious, learn more about myself, but also learn more about the world. Because remember, Craig, I was fighting and working so hard to show you a certain thing, which means that I wasn't getting to know you because I was working so hard to try to be whatever it was I thought I needed to be in order for me to show up and be loved because really all this goes back to is all of us trying to be loved and and so that transition through the makeover and the new lips and and kind of re, redefining who you were how how long did that process take and and what did you probably learn about yourself the most during that time i'll answer that second question first so i learned that everybody wasn't paying attention to my lips. <laughs> That's what I learned. And the way that I learned that was because I used to think when I walk in a room and somebody's laughing, I would think they were laughing at me. And one day I was driving down the street and I had my windows down and I pull up to a car and the car next to me, the people are laughing. 
And my thought was after my, this happened after my surgery, my thought was, I wonder what they're laughing at. And it hit me. And I was like, oh my gosh, all those times that people were laughing because it wasn't my lips anymore because I'd already had the surgery. All those times that people were laughing, sometimes they weren't laughing at me. Sure, sometimes they were, but probably a good portion of the times they were not. It was just something that was funny. I just happened to roll up at that exact time. So that is what I learned about myself. Now, wait, let me remember your, your question. What was the first part of your question? Oh, just that transition, you know, from, from adapting your, your mindset. How long did that mm. take, that process? And so, oh, that was great. I'm so, I'm glad I answered that part first because it really was pretty instant. It was like, because that incident that happened when I rolled up on, on that car, that was just a few weeks after my surgery because my brain was already pliable because of the way I was raised. My mom raised me to be confident and sure and trust my gut. So to make that transition was, and I, and I went to therapy. I should add that in there too. I went to therapy for about not long, just about eight weeks while I was in the healing process. So while my body was healing, my mind was healing at the same time. And it didn't take a lot of therapy for me because I was already ready and had done all that work. And then the way that my, my parents raised us was to be confident and sure and, and, and be pliable and curious. So I was so curious about who I was going to turn out to be. And I, I loved myself already. I just didn't like my lips. So it wasn't like I had to work on me. And that was one of the questions I was on. I think it was like Extra or Excess Hollywood, one of the like magazine shows. And um, this lady kept asking me, well, how do we know that you're not going to be like Michael Jackson and get surgery after surgery after surgery after surgery? And I told her because Michael Jackson was doing external work to fix an internal problem. I had an external problem that I fixed. I had already did my internal work. So that was the difference between me and Michael Jackson. I wasn't doing external things to fix an internal problem. I like it. I like it. Well done. <laughs> we all know smart people have great answers, but the best, or sorry, the most successful people ask great questions. Mm. When was the last time you did something for the first time? Hmm. So I feel like a lot of my life is about doing something for the first time. Um, but let's see, the last time I did something for the first time, uh, well, <laughs> recently I, um, I'm in a, a newer relationship and I think in that relationship, almost everything I do is different than the way I used to do it because the way I was before dating him, uh, was very protective. And my guards are so down and like, I'm so vulnerable. So almost everything I do in this relationship is like the first time I've ever done it. And, and it feels so good because most of the time when you do new stuff, it's kind of like scary. Um, but I think because he's also new and this, you know, we're doing first at the same time together. It's not as scary because we're doing it together. Beautiful. What is the one question that you would love to solve? Hmm. Goodness. I feel like I'm solving that question. And that is like, why, why is everybody in so much pain? Right. So that is what I've dedicated my life to. Um, but let me back that up with a second question would be the question what I, okay, let me see how I can put this. I want the world to know what they know for sure. And so that is the question. What do I know for sure? Right. But I feel like most people are not sure about almost anything. But if I can help them become more sure, then I feel like, wow, what, like how much more confident and easy life could be if they could just be more sure. I didn't say they had to be right. <laughs> so let's get that clear. I just said they needed to be sure. And that is a great feeling to be sure. Kind of like the relationship that I described. I can be easy. I can be vulnerable because I am so sure. For you, what is your definition of living an extraordinary life? 
creating or customizing your own dream. Like stop doing the status quo or what society says to do or what your parents told you to do. Like just stop it. Stop it right now and start doing what it is that was in the back of your mind. Like maybe when you were five years old and you're like, oh, it would be so fun if I could just color all day. Okay, color all day, right? Get, make that part of your life that you get to color all day. It's not silly. It's not childish. Go back to having a childlike heart. The more we can go back to having a childlike heart, the more extraordinary and meaningful our lives can be. Excellent. So how can people learn more about what you do and what is the best way for people to connect with you? So the best way to connect with me would be to go to my website, presidentiallifestyle.com. And the reason why I say that is because we have a, we have a free course on there, a free guide. We also have a free trial for our membership. Now, I did say that the presidential experience is mostly for healers and wellness professionals, doctors. You don't have to be one to join the, the group. You really just have to be somebody that's dedicated to wellness. And so that you might want to take advantage of our free guide. You might want to take advantage of our, our trial membership. And so you can find both of those on presidentiallifestyle.com. The other way that I would say is connect with me on LinkedIn or Instagram. Those are two other free ways, but let me make a dif distinction. On Instagram is just my fun life. Like what you'll see my lifestyle on Instagram. And then on LinkedIn is a little bit more professional stuff. <laughs> so I get more professional on LinkedIn. So if you want to know me as a professional, then let's connect on LinkedIn. If you want to just have some fun with me and see my lifestyle, then Instagram is the place. But I would love it if we could connect in the club and I could pour into you. That's my dream to get to pour into you and show you how to customize your dreams. Can I, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you today. I love your energy, your enthusiasm, your real belief in who you are and what you want to do in life and, and the people that you continually help. You have such conviction around what helps make people better and enjoy themselves and to be able to achieve what they really want to achieve. You know, there's so many people out there who are living this dream that's not theirs. They are living this identity that they don't actually own and is not who they are themselves. And so I just, yeah, it just, it makes me feel so proud inside to see people like yourself who are out there really making a difference and ensuring that people can focus on the things that really matter and disregard the rest. So today, yes. thank you very, very much once again. It's been a real pleasure. My sincere pleasure as well, Craig. Thank you for having me and asking such great questions. Thank you for listening to an incredible conversation with Kine Corder, Finding Your Money Mission on the Active CEO Podcast. You know, have you ever wondered what the most successful people in the world have in common? They have absolute clarity on their vision. You know, I'd like to talk about creating a ripple effect through your purpose, your vision, your mission, your values. If you go back to episode 111 of the Active CEO podcast, we go more in depth into creating a ripple effect. You know, it is very difficult in life to find your destination when you don't know what it is. To be able to gain clarity on your vision, you first need to understand your purpose in life. You know, what is it that gets you up each day with a spring in your stride? Your, what fuels your fire in the belly and what brings a smile to your face? Let's explore why you need to understand your purpose so you can be a world-class leader who is creating a ripple effect. If you're sitting there, you know, listening to this coming into Christmas or around that time and you're thinking, what do I need to make 2021 a great year and to launch me into the future? If you need some, someone to guide you through the process of finding clarity in your vision, mission and values going to 2021, then please contact me at craig at nrg.com. 
the number two, perform.com or click on the contact page of craigjohns.com.au website. Thank you so much for listening to another wonderful conversation. I am Craig Johns. This is the Active CEO Podcast with Ordinary Don't Belong. Join the Active CEO movement by visiting www.nrgtoperform.com. That's nrg2perform.com. Share this podcast on LinkedIn and be sure to tag in NRG to Perform. Leave a review on iTunes. Drop us a line with your feedback and questions and connect with us on the NRG to Perform Facebook and Instagram pages. Be sure to check out the next Active CEO podcast where the ordinary don't belong.